Hello and welcome to episode number eight of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Pete Dominic. Pete's experience as a media maker has included headlining stand-up comedy gigs across the country, which led to a coveted job as the warm-up comic for The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. From there, Pete moved on to regular hosting and guest commentator spots on CNN. For more than a decade, Pete hosted Stand Up With Pete on the Sirius XM satellite radio. And in 2020, he rebranded his radio show as a daily podcast by the same name. Five days a week, Pete engages in deep dive conversations with newsmakers, policy experts, journalists, filmmakers, and thought leaders, asking penetrating questions and always finding a hint of humor in most any subject. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers of all stripes with its array of benefits and services. Visit FC at filmmakerscollab.org to learn more. And if you're enjoying these conversations, please remember to subscribe, review, and share. And now, here's my chat with Pete Dominic. Thank you for joining me on Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. So let me tell you how Pete Dominic came into my life. He came into my life as I was driving to work for a series of years. I think those years, uh, that chapter in my life probably was like 2012 to 2016 or 17 or so. And uh, my, at the time, new car came with Sirius XM Radio which was a godsend for me because drive time radio around any metropolitan area is a nightmare of, you know, you know, the whole spiel. Everybody, it's Scooter and Jackson in the morning, everybody. Absolutely. And the, and the uh, ubiquitous uh, female um, third wheel who just says, cut it out. You guys are the worst. <laughs> and then there's like a special effect, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, anyway, so sexism of morning radio is something someone needs to do a dissertation on. You're absolutely right. It's like this will always have the one lady in the chick in the corner. Come on, man, son. Yeah, and they and they always have to sort of skirt up to that line of naughtiness that the the the, the female voice pulls them away from before well, they go to uh, traffic traffic and weather on the threes. You have analyzed it well, sir. Yeah, <laughs> and probably too much so, but you know, such That's, as I am. In any case, back to my uh, my discovery of Pete Dominic on Sirius XM Radio. At the time, I believe you were on the POTUS channel, and then you got your own channel. What really drew me to your show was the um, the wealth of different types of guests that you had on. You you know you did have on filmmakers, you had on journalists, you had on activists, you had on big thinkers talking about big and interesting things. You know you you were able to have these longer form conversations that just made for you know great great driving companion. And then you would open it up to questions from your listeners. More than once, I called up to uh, pose a question to, to one of your guests. But that actually is probably around chapter three or four in your professional story. Yeah. So let's sort of, let, let's pull the, the lens back a bit and talk about Pete Dominic, media maker. And when I invited you on the show, you did get back to me and say, well, you know what? I'm not a filmmaker. Yeah. And I pointed out to you that we purposely called this 
making media now because you know this show is produced by filmmakers collaborative they're 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 the sponsor of the show and when we were putting together the idea for the podcast we wanted to make sure that we broadened um the definition of media makers to encapsulate all of the ways that people are creating compelling content whether it comes out in a documentary film or a feature film or a podcast or a book uh, or some type of a digital platform. So under that definition, you have been making media for quite some time and it started in the world of comedy. Yeah. So let's begin there and bring me up to what you had for breakfast this morning. Oh, well, started as a stand-up comedian and then, uh, I had an orange mailed to me from California. That's the whole story. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, I love that you have added that kind of element. uh, So it's not just films. Although I have, I I did work as a production assistant on a film called a price above rubies starring Renee Zellweger post her Jerry Maguire fame. I remember that movie. And and then I also, yeah. And then I also uh, have been, uh, involved and in around, you know, films and filmmakers. And I've interviewed a lot of filmmakers over the years. The greatest memory uh, for me and my, my daughter, Ava is interviewing the Russo brothers who are the, you know, brothers who co-directed the, the Marvel universe, the infinity uh, war and end game, those films. And we interviewed them together. So I've been, you know, around filmmakers a lot in my career, but never really would certainly would not call myself a filmmaker, but I think I'm going to have to put content creator on my tax form, uh, maybe influencer, uh, which is two things I didn't aspire to being, but certainly a media maker. And ideally at this point, I'd love to have gone from being, you know, looked at as a comedian to kind of being, um, a journalist in a way, a pseudo journalist, but I, I don't call myself that because I feel like that's a little stolen valor given what journalists have done. They haven't done what I've done as a comedian. So there's this it's hard to say who I am or what I am. I need to figure that out, how to brand myself better. But I certainly started out as a comedian. Then I uh, almost did exclusively stand up. I went to school for acting, but knew I never really wanted to pursue a career as an actor because it wasn't a meritocracy the way that comedy was. If you're really good at comedy, you'll succeed as long as you aren't a, you know, a, a criminal. And even if you are, you probably will, as long as you use those crimes for content. But And you get a laugh. Sure. But, and there's plenty of criminals who have done great in comedy. I then transitioned into uh, a different types of media. Specifically, I got a great gig at Sirius XM. And then I got hired at CNN and other networks. And then started doing more speaking and more activism. Being invited to, to address different folks in different ways. And, and now doing that virtually. And so... I can talk about, you know, experiences in television and radio and now podcasting and independent new media as well as traditional media as well. Because I've, I've navigated, I think, what, what our generation of, of humans would call this kind of straddling from old to new media, ours being, you know, more traditional media to what we now see, which is all digital, you know, internet media. And, and so I feel like I've, I've done so much of it all. So wherever you want to go in this conversation, on any of those places, I'm, I'm happy to speak to my experiences on them. And I'm happy always to be in conversation with you because I have such great respect for you. And I've gotten to know you over the past year in a way. I've gotten to know very few people and I adore you. Oh, well, likewise. Likewise. One of the words that I, I mean, I want to be with you, just me and you for the rest of time. Just yeah, that's a, seeing, no, 
that's a bit much, but okay. Well, then we could we can still have the conversation. Okay. That's all right. Okay. All right. The okay. rest of time, that's uh, I got a schedule to keep. Too far, too fast. I understand. It's not yeah. the appropriate yeah. place. Exactly. So, uh, Pete, um, one of the words that comes to mind when I when I think about what you do and how you do it and how you've been doing it over your career is adaptability. Yes. So in your in your moving from the stand up comedy world. One little piece that you did leave out was the uh, tell our listeners about the work that you did with The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Yeah, that was a huge chapter in my life. Um, I, I still classify that under, you know, exclusively comedy. Uh, but those shows were iconic shows. So I, I was the audience warm up comedian for The Colbert Report for six years. And the way I got that gig was because I had that job at The Daily Show. And the way I got The Daily Show gig was I had to do a whole bunch of awful, horrendous uh, sh- failures of shows, many of which were just pilots that I got hired to be the audience warm-up comedian on. And it was brutal. And the audiences were people who didn't want to be there in the morning, Michael. I mean, people I'd say, well, what, what brought you inside? And a guy in the audience would be like, heat. <laughs> I mean, you know, these were sometimes they were prisoners. They were inmates that the, the productions paid to have be in the audience. So I did all the, the horrible ones to get to the best ones and the best shows to ever be the audience warm-up comedian or the Daily Show and the Colbert Report because those audiences were really smart. They were from all over the world. They didn't like contrived comedy. You really had to be on your toes and do new stuff every night. And that was a wonderful experience and taught me that, you know, the only way for progressive political media uh, to succeed up until then, at least, was to use humor. You know, there wasn't really any progressive media stars that were influential, certainly in any way. Uh, 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 they were all conservative in radio and TV until John Stewart, I think, really made a difference. Obviously, Bill Maher and there are others, but uh, Colbert really changed the world. I decided I wanted to do that on the radio if I could. Obviously, it's different. Uh, and I wanted to use humor as much as I could to talk about important and interesting subjects and fight apathy. That was the goal. And, and so then that's when I created my, my radio show. I was already hosting a comedy show at Sirius XM. So I, I created this talk radio show basically. And, uh, and it evolved uh, drastically. And as you said, adapted to many different things, different channels, different time slots. And now as a podcast. When you found yourself able to get laughs from the Colbert audience and from the Daily Show audience, did it tell you anything new about your comedy that that hadn't occurred to you before? Yeah, tell me. And, I was, and about the type of audience you might want to cultivate. Yeah, tell me I was a lot smarter than I gave myself credit for because I didn't give myself credit as a comedian for being a much of a, a writer. I was never like a, a really great, and still I'm not a great joke writer. But my strength came in the ability to empathize with anybody anywhere for a a moment in time based on any circumstances. So I could walk into a room and still can and feel people's feelings and generalize about them and be fairly close to accurate. Not a great quality to have in your personal life because all you do is judge everybody and you've written a story for them. I had to write a story for complete strangers so I could make up and I would make up a story about a guy in the audience because he looks like he's European wearing those rectangular eyeglasses. And so now I've got a story for him. And, and I've, Dieter. Sure. He gives me anything and I'm off the races. So that was where I realized I know so, so much about the world and about people and about behavior. Not so much. I'm not a scholar, but like an autodidact and, and, and living around all different types of people and feeling their feelings, foreign and domestic, black and white. Uh, religious and non, you name it. I'd had been around them in my life. I soaked in their energy, their essence, their feelings. And I gave that back to them in a way that they could relate to. 
those audiences were so diverse at the Daily Show and the Colbert Report, and they were so educated usually and, and thoughtful, and I could make all of them laugh without knowing anything about them because of all my assumptions and, and judgments and training as a comedian. I learned that about myself and how I was going to use that, you know, to further my career or, you know, to be a better person remains, you know, remained a question. And I think I've been grappling with and dealing with and, and trying to understand and, 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 and capitalize on for when, all. When you were, when you were growing up and listening to comedians or being exposed to comedians um, that, that kind of resonated with you was the ability of a comedian to be able to both make you laugh and maybe think about, think about something outside of the laugh. Was that important for you as a, as a fan of comedy? No, I mean, the only thing that mattered was that people were laughing. I did have more respect for people who made me think while laughing, but I had, you know, a huge amount of respect for anybody who could make me laugh anywhere, including, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about the type of humor that my friends and I developed as preteens, teens, and, you know, post high school and college and how I was immersed in all different types of sense of humor. I started with, of course, with my parents and my dad, who I didn't realize it until fairly recently. He was doing bits my whole life. He tells his storyteller. And he would get huge laughs. He'd have everybody listening to him rapped. He'd be doing all the voices. And, and then this guy says this and everybody would be dying laughing. I would watch that. Then my brother took it up a notch and, and then also introduced me to, you know, professional comedians, Saturday Night Live and George Carlin. My dad had tapes hidden under his Playboys. And, and we would listen to those together. And then my dad took me to see Carlin, as a matter of fact. And we watched a, a lot of the audience in Syracuse War Memorial walk out when he started doing his abortion bits. And my dad wasn't mad about the, the content. He was mad that anybody would pay for an event and then leave. He thought that was wrong. We have to stay at Syracuse University football games, even if the score is 47-0, because we paid. So we had to stay with some real twisted logic, but loved it anyway. So I got to hang out with my pop uh, and, and those types of things. But I think it's, it's to me, like being in school and being my brother in, in, in humor. And then in college, I hung out with a bunch of black guys and they put me through like black humor training camp, which was fascinating. And then, you know, New York City, Jews and, and gays and humor that they did based on their pain and discrimination. And that was a whole different type than what I grew up with. So it's like all these different types of, of humor, cultural humor that I immerse myself in so that I could adapt to them and, and not only listen and enjoy them, but deliver them and perform for black audiences, for Jewish audiences at a synagogue, uh, for children even. Whatever the audience, I wanted to figure out how to make them laugh because I wasn't about the art, Michael. I was about the, the income. I, I like the idea of making a living performing. I love that idea. That, sure. that uh, appealed to me, but I wasn't going to be like one of these people. I just heard an interview with a, a great writer who, I, who just passed away, Barry Lopez. And he's like, you can't do this for the money. You have to do it. Barry Lopez oh. passed away? Sorry. I didn't know that. Re like how recent? This past week. Did he really? Arctic Dreams, Barry Lopez. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was a, that Arctic Dreams is an amazing book. Very important book. I don't know how I missed that. Wow. Tell me I about, mean, are we going to talk about Barry Lopez or me? Well, I want to talk a lot about Barry Lopez and I want to dedicate a whole episode to him, by the way, just playing. Now you used to be able to do a really good Barry Lopez impersonation. Would you mind doing that for the rest of this conversation? <laughs> well, Michael, I mean, the Actually, I don't know yeah. that I've ever heard him speak. It's fine. It's, it works. This is what he said. It brings me back to the point. I'll Barry Lopez trust said that you sound exactly like him. I'll get close. You know, Michael, you have to be 
a writer because you enjoy writing. The moment you start chasing a book proposal or money, you're no longer a good writer. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that, actually. <laughs> so, like, I wanted to be both a great comedian and make money doing it. And so you started this by saying and al- analyzing me perfectly. And most people don't know this, and I'm fine with it because it's true. Adaptation. I want to be able to make a living. I want to be able to do comedy for any organization, any venue, any time. And I've done some weird, weird gigs. I've talked to several filmmakers on on this podcast, and we have talked about that. What really seems like an unfair expectation around, particularly they say like documentary filmmakers, I think until fairly recently, and I don't know when that fairly recently kicked in, maybe it was a decade ago or more. If you were, say, in the documentary film world, you were supposed to be okay with essentially living hand to mouth um, in some rundown studio apartment for 15 years, you know, making a documentary about the mating habits of spores and four people uh, were going to see it, but that's okay. You made a documentary, but I've talked to a lot of super talented, really curious, really innovative and highly adaptable people who have decided, you know what? No, I want to be able to do well and do good. And you can define good as you choose, you know? And I, I, I think, from the Pete Dominic perspective, part of your doing good is almost being this conduit for all of these super interesting and involved uh, and interested voices um, that you're presenting to the masses. And comedy was sort of your way into that. When did the when did the uh, your sort of worldview around things like say politics? start to meld with your comedy and turn you into somebody that had enough credibility to be on a CNN. Well, I did not have enough credibility by my own standard to be on CNN then or now. That's the problem with CNN or MSNBC, that they're putting on people who don't have credibility. If credibility only comes in communicating thought, you know, uh, expertise in, in under three minutes, then fine. Uh, but if you ask me to stay for a fourth minute and I can't keep talking about this issue and you should be talking about it with the people I talk about it with, uh, which is where I learned to do this soundbite. Uh, but to get to your answer to the question, I was always politically aware. I think I was always socially conscious because of the family I was raised in specifically my brother, uh, and his awareness around issues like racism and sexism, especially, and then later on, environmentalism, sustainability. Uh, and my mom was a public school teacher. And so there was a certain level of, of, of conditioning and exposure that she gave me to, you know, that work, which is different than where we grew up. She taught in the city schools amongst mostly, socio, you know, lower socioeconomics, a lot of black kids. And, you know, what city is this? Syracuse, forgive okay. me, Syracuse City School District. My mom was a teacher there for 20 years. Um, and, but specifically 9-11 and becoming a, a father made me want to do more than just comedy. And it made me want to use comedy as a vehicle to get to a more thought provoking conversation. And I was never like good enough and still am not like smart enough to, 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 to do hours and hours of comedy just about social issues and make it as brilliant as I thought the greats were. So my cheat or my in-between or my adaptability was to just, basically, I just talk to the smartest people I can find, learn how to be, learn how to be a really good interviewer and listener, which I'm still getting, you know, still problems with and still growing, I think is 
what I tried to do. And then the credibility came in that people enjoyed talking to me. And that's that people enjoyed talking to me enough that I have been able to continue to book them outside of a corporate media atmosphere on my own independent podcast. And therein lies the currency of my show that these people are willing to speak with me on the record about their expertise. I want to talk about how your podcast, which is called Stand Up With Pete, and uh, came together. But before we get into that, uh, back to the whole concept of adaptability, what, what measures were you taking to, to make satellite radio want to take a risk with you and you know, give you your own platform for what, three hours a day at its, at its height, correct? And that was for 12 years, which is multiple lifetimes in the media business. Yes. Uh, the answer to that question might be boring, but uh, we can do boring. We had a laugh track, Pete, in the post-production. So while it may oh, be great. definitely okay. dull between us, it'll be uproarious by the time this thing. Then comes. Here we go. I'm just a person who I think probably is pretty good at capitalizing on opportunities. I'm, I'm good at recognizing opportunities and capitalizing on them. I'm good at walking in a room and telling somebody, Hey, I want to, I want to do this, but I did get ser- hired at Sirius XM and kind of a more traditional show business way. Whereas they were looking for someone to host a daily show on their comedy channels. And, uh, which was a one hour call and request show like music. It was, it was really clever, but at this point, Sirius XM technology, you could play any comedy comedian track. There were so many albums. It was such a huge library of comedy. It was a perfect time to say, Hey, I want to hear George Pryor. And it was kind of before you could Spotify any bit you wanted or YouTube any bit you wanted, but even now it still works. I think, uh, where you call up and you're part of the, you know, a live program. I'd like to hear Mitch Hedberg. And then I, capitalized, I auditioned amongst uh, some other pretty high name comedians that people would recognize. Uh, I got the gig. They hired me. I got that gig. It was $75 a day. And it was the best. What year is this? 2006. It was shortly after the Montreal Comedy Festival. I was a pretty hot commodity at that point. And, and so they hired me. And the moment you put Pete Dominic, the moment you give me a, a, a security ID to get in your building, your company is the moment you have hired a worm. <laughs> so I did my college internship at Disney world after my freshman year of college. And I spent the entire, I was there to make fast food. They hired me to, I made fast food at Epcot center, but every you hour up being snow white, if I remember correctly, I did transition into snow white. And it was because my height and weight was perfect for the, the costume. Uh, they needed young they needed smallish women or tiny men. And so, yeah, it was pretty, it was an honor too. And I was the first man who had ever, ever taken the role from a woman. And so there was some controversy, but most of the time I spent networking. I knocked on doors of product film production, TV production that was there because I had the ID and I did the same thing in New York city. And I did the same thing in show business. And uh, I knocked on doors. I got into clubs, I got agents and I did everything I could do. I made plenty of mistakes while doing it. But once I got hired at Sirius XM, I did that for a year, expanded it to an interview show, which is a separate show. And then saw an opportunity, the best opportunity of my life, recognized it. And I've done this a lot in my life. Uh, I can tell you many stories I'm pretty proud of, but basically they were Sirius and XM were going to merge as companies. They were in competition. Two satellite companies could not exist. They could only I exist recall, they were yeah. just one. So they did merge after a lot of controversy and um, they got rid of the channel that I was hired. No, I'm sorry. It was before that. Basically I heard they were starting an independent politics channel. And I knew the company well enough to knew they weren't going to pay anybody. They just wanted to do this as a press release to compete with XM. Mm-hmm. So I went into the office 
because I already had the idea. I was already in the building. I found out they had hired this guy to start the channel. I walked into his office. I said, hi, my name is, he goes, I know you. Before I even introduced myself, he recognized me because I did audience warm-up on CNBC's Mad Money with Jim Cramer. And he goes, I know you. And he goes, I saw you perform a miracle. I go, wait, what? He goes, I saw you perform at University of Michigan in the round for college students as the audience warm-up comedian for a, 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 a Mad Money. And no one was paying attention. And you got all of them to pay attention. You took over the room and then handed the microphone to Jim Cramer. I know who you are. It was the best thing ever that like my reputation, this guy had actually seen me perform and now it was his job to hire and program out this new channel. They gave me a shot to make a demo. I made a one hour demo where I said American military should be used uh, as, as humanitarian propaganda. Anywhere there's a disaster, they should fly in red, white, and blue helicopters and, and, and go in and save everybody's lives. And then that's who the American military will now be. And they bought it. They bought a three-hour show based on that one-hour demo. And that led to the, the, the program on the Indie Channel. That led to the program on the Indie Channel, which led to the merger on the POTUS Channel, which led to a new channel, uh, Indie Talk, which was early mornings, which led me to creating my greatest triumph in my career uh, outside of uh, re this podcast, frankly, uh, was to, within that company, create a channel based on the daily show and the Colbert rapport, which, uh, was called insight. And then they pretty much, uh, polluted and destroyed the, the, my vision of the channel, but I did create it and get a nice press, press release out of it and got to exist on it for almost five years. Which again is such a huge achievement. And you and I have had this conversation, you know, when you're, when, when you're in that, that, that eye of the hurricane and, uh, you know, your, your whole professional identity is wrapped up with it. It's, you don't get that perspective of really how impressive it is, particularly given such a crowded media landscape that, you know, who lasts for, for five years? There was no way people were saying that to me. The reason you don't get that, everybody was saying it to me, uh, including one comedian who I was, I told how, you know, I was, it was in, a, in the worst spot after I lost my job there. And I told him, uh, very funny guy named Russ Maneev, super successful. Well, yeah, just a great guy, well-respected by all comedians. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I just lost my job. I'm, I'm really depressed. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, he's like, what? He's like, you're depressed. That's the greatest run I've ever heard. Like to get 12 years hosting a show, that's a great run. And again, it gave me a perspective, but, the, but again, Michael, you know, let's get honest. It's nice to sit there and go, wow, you accomplished, accomplished something great that many others haven't, but where are you going to get health insurance for your kids? How are you going to pay the mortgage? I wasn't as, you know, concerned with what I'd accomplished and, and, and basking in it as trying to figure out what was next and how I was going to support my family. Exactly. And, and when you get into that mindset that, you know, th those types of concerns or fears are driving your thinking, it's very easy for you to lose sight of the fact that, that back to this adaptability, that at other junctures in your career, you've been forced to adapt and you did adapt. Yep. So when you, your most recent adaptation uh, is with the stand up and stand up with Pete podcast, which I just listened to episode number 258. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of podcast listeners out there because you're listening to a podcast. So you've revealed yourself 258 podcasts in just over a year. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. And well, a daily show to be clear. You know, so and there are very few podcasts that are daily shows. And I don't know a single one that's a daily show of the duration. I mean, your average show is. And what, if 90? it is a daily show, it is. And it's 
only it's produced, edited and promoted by one person. It's not as high quality as mine. That's what I'm most proud of. Like I'm doing this all on my own because the adaptability and survivability and the way the technology has, 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 you know, become more affordable and adaptable uh, to people. But yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a lot. And, and I'm really proud of it now and I'm really excited about it. But the, you know, I also realize now that I'm 45 years old, I keep using it as a metaphor because it's, it's not a metaphor. It's literal, like getting in the room is, is the most important thing. But I'm now 45. Michael, I've been in all the rooms. You name it. Tell me the room from HBO to Aspen to Sirius to CNN to all of the networks, you name a media company. I've been in the room in one role or another. So now the, I'm established, if you will. Now those people join me in my virtual room, which is my shed in my backyard, because I've been in all those rooms. I don't need necessarily, maybe I'm wrong, to keep going into them physically because I've had such a, a good career. So that's where, you know, my mindset is and my pride and my confidence that now, now these people will join me in my room, which is my podcast, which takes place in a Home Depot shed that I retrofitted and put. Uh, does, does creating content for a podcast uh, provide you with any opportunities that, that you haven't had on other broadcast platforms? Oh boy, that's a great question. I don't think so. I don't think it has provided me with any opportunities. It has continued uh, providing me with the only opportunity that I want. I want my work. If I can't, if my job can't be like park ranger, uh, riding a horse and not talking to anybody, but just something in nature that would support my family with all that we need in health insurance. Maybe someday it will be, and I'll just be a ski instructor, honestly. But if my job in the meantime, what I'm good at and what my career is based on is, is talking to people. And so if I can make money talking to brilliant people, that's the only opportunity I want. And so that's mm-hmm. what it's afforded me. It's con- the, the continued opportunity to, to speak to the same high profile people I did in corporate media, now in independent media that I own and it is, you know, purely subscription based. So that it's, it's afforded me the same opportunity, the only opportunity I really want the most. And one of those electric fireplaces, because a listener just sent me one of them. Yeah, well, those are those are the best. And I know that uh, our podcast is audio only. We don't have a video channel, which is a shame because had we had a video channel, you would all be able to see that Pete is actually on a horse right now doing this interview. He's sort of incorporated that into his. Well, I'm doing a gig later. I have to be dressed up. I'm doing a gig later. I have to be dressed up as a Mountie. So they give me the whole red uniform and the hat and everything. It's a Canadian. Once again, adaptability, folks. Exactly. Plus, I have to get this horse back soon. I'm interested in how your day is structured. Sure. Really? Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, anyone because when I, when I listen to you, here's what I think about. I think about the time necessary to have these conversations actually back it up before that. I think about the time necessary to book your guests, the time necessary to become uh, conversant with that guest's specialty. Um, and, and, your topics tend to be way uh, pretty much of the moment. So you're going to have an event went down in the world over the last 24, 48 hours, and you're going to have top of the line experts on that to, to speak about that event. So you're booking the guest, you're getting conversant around how to have a conversation with the guest. Then there's all the post-production and then you got to wind it up and do it again. So yeah, I want to know um, how you structure your day. Well, I think it's important for people to make sure that their work is not separate from 
from their life in terms of how they prioritize their life. I may have learned that from you at some point in one way or another, because you've been such a good mentor of mine. But basically when I, I try to think about my day in terms of, because I'm so flexible with my schedule and because I am integral in, in the role that I play in my family, I do try to think of my day and what is my wife, uh, was my partner and my daughter's need from me today. And where do I need to put those efforts in, whether it be driving them around, helping them with something um, or just even, you know, making sure I, I send them some kind, kind of uh, contribution. Because if I'm going to be having con- conversations with, with all these smart people, I want to make sure I connect with them. And so I, I, I do that kind of think about how I can help them first. I don't do it perfectly every day. Um, I do meditation every day, pretty much, because that's super important to my productivity. I try to exercise. So either walk or run and I usually don't eat food is not a part of my um, first half of my day. And then I, um, the whole time I'm all that time I'm thinking about and reading news, right? Those first couple of hours, if I don't have an early interview, which I haven't been booking myself. And, um, then I figure out who might be most relevant. Usually I book one guest on day of who's going to be more relevant to a news cycle. And I try to get another guest who's a little bit more evergreen or who I always know is going to be great. There's a handful of people that are amazing utility. You name the issue. They're going to be smart and thoughtful about it. So there's certain regulars I can on for yeah, that. And you have really cultivated a strong bench yeah. that, that fits that definition. Uh, inform our, our listeners uh, as to a, a few of these people and maybe even by their specialty. I mean, there's Dr. Aaron Carroll, yeah. uh, who's really just makes healthcare policy so understandable and, and almost obvious. And I know he's been a, uh, a very frequent guest uh, uh, on your... Um, talk about a wide range of issues. So, you know, from, from race uh, to economics to environment and energy. I, I've got people for each of those issues for depression, addiction, anxiety, you know, more personal things, family, parenting. Um, there are, you could name any issue and I could name somebody who I trust and, and, and think is really great at talking about it. But then there are those other people who can, you know, talk about just about anything. And there are so many of them from Wajahat Ali to Jeff Jarvis to, you know, including guy who's an expert on finance, but can talk about anything, Barry Ritholt to Dr. Jason Johnson, Dr. Christine Greer. Um, Maura Quint is, is fantastic. I, I could go on and on and I think it would bore people, but um, it's just great to have all these people, up, not at my fingertips because it's not like they're just going to pick up the phone, but pretty much I can get them on with just a couple hours notice. National security is a huge issue where I know a lot of people and you know, you name it. What is your, what's your media diet? Yeah, I'm a carnivore. I'm an omnivore. I take it all in documentaries, books, long form magazine articles, uh, short cable news segments, social media. But reading is where I try to spend most of my time reading. Usually magazine and newspaper stuff is probably where I spend most of my time. And do you find that, okay, so say today you read something in a magazine or a book as you're reading, or are you immediately thinking, I want to talk to this this man or this woman? Yes. And then the great love, the great opportunity of my career is that I can, I read an article, I watch a documentary, read a book, and I then can book that person very quickly. It's the coolest thing in the world. And one of my favorite journalists, I asked James Fallows one time, I asked him what the greatest thing about his career was. And he said, the greatest thing about being a journalist is that I get to, you know, read about somebody or, or, or learn about somebody. And then, and then 
inter- and then have the opportunity to ask them questions. And I was like, mine too, even though I'm not the journalist that you are, I'm not a journalist. That's the greatest thing about my career, reading an article, reading a book, watching a doc and being able to interview the, the author, the writer, the filmmaker, director uh, within a short period. Or more importantly, now in my career, they reach out to me. Will you read my book and interview me? That's awesome. That, 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 that seems like that's sort of the golden ticket. When publicists are soliciting, you know, you know, their, their authors, their, their people to you, you know, that you're, you're doing something that's working because they, they want to get their people on with you on your show. Yeah. I've heard you describe your podcast as a, uh, and I, I might get this wrong, but classroom for the, uh, the airwaves or the digital airwaves these days. Oh, you like that? Yeah. I thought that was a perfect summation. I should go back to that then. Use it all the time. Another reason I want I'm not the teacher. I'm the class clown. That's how I used to uh, format that. It's a classroom and I'm not the teacher. I'm a student like you. Another reason that I wanted to chat with you, Pete, was Filmmakers Collaborative really helps out filmmakers sort of run all of the financial gauntlets that are necessary to get a documentary made or a film made or or a piece of media. You likewise, uh, with your podcast, just from the conversations that you and I have had over the past few months, you know, you've had to make some decisions along those lines. Um, we're getting back to the whole category of uh, doing well and and also doing good. So as you look at the podcasting landscape, how does podcasting as a, you know, as, a, as an occupation, how does it become viable? I would imagine that for most people, it doesn't, even if you do a great job consistently day in, in daily or weekly or, or monthly. It just, it doesn't because no one can find your podcast. I think some people obviously have such a niche and that's the great thing about podcasting or YouTube or content today that if you, if you talk about my little pony and your audience is 40 year old men, you might be able to find enough men that care that you can make money doing that. So that's a very like small, you know, specific niche. There's so many of those types of people. You're more likely probably to be more general and find an audience, but it's very, very hard. I think probably to, for, for most people, no matter who they are. I mean, one, one interesting example of this is like, even if you're an Instagram star and you have a million followers on Instagram, it depends on why you're a star. But if you're like an attractive person, there's a lot of attractive, you know, in shape uh, men and women. And you start a podcast and you tell your million followers on Instagram, I have a podcast now. Well, they, they, they might listen to it. They might not, but they might listen to it. And if they do, they're not going to stay. There's not going to be enough downloads because you're not good at podcasting. So you have to be good at it. And it doesn't matter if you have a huge following. My situation is very unique and I've been consulting and mentoring a lot of people who want to, you know, do what I'm doing. I say to them, listen, I've been doing this. I did this for 14 years, three hours a day, five days a week. And whatever that audience is, a certain percentage of them have come with me and are supporting me with a paid subscription. That's hard to start from, from nowhere. You know, it's, it's harder to not have, you know, people who listen to podcasts, they listened and paid for me at Sirius. So I had a real head start with podcasting that people would pay for it. So I don't charge anybody for consulting them on their podcast because my specific situation is so unique to me. So anyway, um, it's hard to monetize a, a podcast and there's only two ways to do it, subscriptions and ads. And I think that's true. You know, you can get ben- wealthy benefactors if you know wealthy, but there's all different ways, but you got to get money to do it. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to do uh, this every day. It sounds easy because it's just sound, but things like that, I edit out, I add, th- you know, it's the booking of it, the promoting of it. I do a lot of editing. I do sound. It's, it's a lot. So, you know, I do it all myself, but I, I taught myself to do it because of the 
the uh, adaptability quotient that you have to have to survive, I think, in, in the business that I've chosen to exist in. Do you have any thoughts on what will come to be of the consolidation of podcasts? You've got a lot of the bigger known names and even some names that uh, really aren't that big that are being uh, sort of swallowed up by the Spotify's of the world. Do you think that that, that I, more I and know. more that'll happen? It's hard to tell. I think that that remains to be seen, but I think that you can, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that there's a lot of people doing, having a similar model that I have, which is putting out all types of content, minus podcasts, but it could be YouTube and using uh, subscription services like Patreon, which is, I think the most popular one. Uh, but there are others in other ways, certainly Substack, which is mostly writers, uh, where you don't need to fit into, uh, any kind of media, uh, companies plan and you can make a good living. Now, I mean, people do the math. If you can get 3000, a thousand people to pay $5 or five, you know, a mix of five, 10, 25. Uh, I have subscribers who pay all different numbers from five to $200 for a, for an item that's free because they want, people want to support independent media and they want to have access to the, the, the creators. And in my case, pretty much people have pretty wide access to me and, um, and they want to be able to feel purpose driven and, 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 you know, creating, adding to that content because that's not what they do. And so if you have 3000, you're going to be making a lot of money. If you have, you know, I, my friend Jason Ellis just left Sirius XM. He has like almost 4,000 in like under a month. He's going to be way better off than he was in corporate media. So I, I say a lot of people that are in corporate media, time to go. If you got 10, 20 years left in your career, great time to go. Sure. One of the, one of the, I think, differentiators in what you do is the relationship that you have with your listeners. And in the, in particularly in the podcast realm, um, you like you have your listeners on as guests from time to time. You have the special kind of breakout uh, sessions with them, hangouts, or I'm not sure what uh, platform you use for that. But it it really feels like you're extending an invitation for the listener to be invested in a. It's a conversation. They're more than just an audience member. Yeah, we've built an online community of people that are, you know, um, dealing with the same that are that are existing in 2020. <laughs> but yeah, and it's yeah. it's actually wonderful to be able to hear that because you know there's there's so much media that it's sort of top down experts talking to the unwashed yep. masses, or it's those very packaged. We're going to go into a diner in Des Moines and yep. talk to these four right. people, and there's our snapshot of Middle America. When in actuality, people are far more diverse than that. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And we've created a community of, of all of very diverse people from all over uh, the country and Canada and even internationally uh, that are smart, curious people who then get access to the guests because we do a hangout like once a week. I invite the guests to join me that are regulars on the show and they get to talk to them. And it's, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. It's really helping people and me more than anybody else, of course, because I'm, I'm, I'm doing this now for, for my, my job. And, and it's very special and unique. And the relationship that I have with so many listeners is very uh, authentic. And I, I think I probably get more out of it than, than they do in many ways. So I don't feel like I'm being put out. I don't feel unsafe or compromised. People are great. And most of them, they, they realize I recognize how much they have to offer me and that I'm interested in what they have to offer the conversation and the community and, um, and that I will drench whatever talent they have from their being. 
so that they don't lose it, but that I can manifest some part of that in my own life as I have done with you. Well, I am um, super appreciative of you taking the time to uh, chat with me today. I know you're a busy guy. You got to get that horse back. And And then I have to get my daughter to the orthodontist where she has to get her in, you know, the Invisalign, the plastic things and the teeth which is a remarkable uh, uh, grift, I think, because when we were growing up, the the metal braces and they required constant maintenance and tightening. And and now it's just like a a hockey mouth guard and I'm paying five grand for it. I don't understand. How did I not get in on the ground floor on Invisalign? Yeah, well, that's a whole, uh, I think you could do a series of podcasts on the arbitrary pricing of orthodonter work. Uh, Pete, before we sign off, let our listeners know how they can find your show and how they can find all things Pete Dominic. Stand Up With Pete Dominic. Uh, you can go to Stand Up With Pete is uh, my website. You can frankly email me and I'll, I'll answer any question you have. Stand Up With Pete at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at Pete Dominic. But anywhere you get podcasts, uh, if you can listen and subscribe to Stand Up, that'd be great. We'd love to have you be a part of our community. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank and, you. Uh, I enjoy any conversation I get to have with you on or off the record. I really appreciate it. And I love your podcast. Thank you very much, buddy. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. 